I'm pretty sure Darth Vader's point of no return was killing younglings, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he did blow up like an entire planet, so. <laughs> At least one planet that we know of. <laughs> Probably a lot of younglings on that one, too. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Desecrated Temple in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 187 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about losing yourself to the siren song of evil. But first the rogue traders finally gain an audience with a powerful rival in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the purifier cleans up your mess in the character creation forge. So Shane, do you watch Stranger Things? I do watch Stranger Things. Have you heard about the uh, the latest episode of Stranger Things that's coming out? The latest episode? Uh, in real life? Yeah, it's not on Netflix. It's in a box. <laughs> it's published by Hasbro. It's going to be in our minds. So, yeah. So, cool thing. Wizards of the Coast announced uh, recently that there is now a D&D Stranger Things starter box, uh, which is sort of geared towards running the um, adventure with the Demogorgon that the kids in Stranger Things were running in the basement uh, sort of at the beginning of the series. Okay, so I had heard some rumors about this. So it is the version of the game that they are playing, not a version of the game in which you play the kids from Stranger Things, right? Correct, yes. You are okay. playing the the dungeon with the Demogorgon in it, not playing the kids from Stranger Things. Although, I mean, you could use it to play the kids from Stranger Things who are playing the dungeon. Uh, that would be Demogorgon. pretty meta. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in the box is uh, like the adventure book, a rule book. There are uh, pre-made character sheets. Uh, you get dice, though I will note it's six dice. You don't get two D10s. Um, and then there's also two figures. There's uh, the Demogorgon and then uh, an unpainted Demogorgon, which I, I guess is interesting. Is it? Is it interesting that it's unpainted? I mean, it makes me think there's two Demogorgons in the in the adventure, right? It's paints a bull, though. Yes, we're pretty sure. Yeah, so there's a painted okay. one and a paintable figure. <laughs> okay, okay. I guess everything is paintable if you try hard enough. So you you played Magic the Gathering back in the day, right? Like uh-huh. a bit. Okay, long long ago, there was this card called Scheherazade, where yes. you would play it targeting up another player and the two of you would like go off and play another separate magic the gathering game and whoever won that like i think you know um or whoever lost that lost a bunch of health right and then you come back to the original game and pick up where you left off hear me out what if you play kids on bikes which is that like you know simple uh, uh-huh. rpg where you were essentially playing like stranger things right and then within that then you use this to play a D&D game of the game that they were playing. Huh? Oh, huh? oh, that's meta. Super meta. Shahrazad was banned from Magic Gathering tournaments because it took because it was way too long. Yeah. yeah, no, it was, it was like the worst idea. So I don't know. Maybe it's not a great idea. It's like the only good card in Arabian Nights, and yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the uh, Stranger Things starter box is going to be available at. Uh, most major retailers nationwide, pretty much everywhere you can get, you know, all this like uh, D&D swag. No, 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 it's not D&D. It's actually published by Hasbro. Like they have a Hasbro oh, logo Oh, so it'll be like everywhere, everywhere. So it's it's like everywhere. Yeah, it's going to be in the like the Hasbro games aisle instead of being in like the hobby 
hobby retailers. Oh, man. You can find it at Toys R Us. Nope, not Toys R Us. Barnes & Noble. <laughs> nope, may not be around when April swings by. So probably we'll find it at Target. <laughs> <laughs> KB Toys. Nope, nope. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. It's a bad industry. It's a struggling industry. All right. Yeah, it looks like it'll be 25 bucks. Uh, of course, as you note here, Shane, you can get the actual 5e starter set for less than 10 bucks. Yeah, so if you don't care about the Stranger Things branding, uh, you can get started with D&D for under $10 uh, just using the the traditional adventure. Yeah, or the basic rules PDF for free online. I, I think this is actually pretty cool, though, right? Like, the we've seen, like, a crossover of Magic into D&D. Now we're seeing D&D, like, first put on sort of the big screen, right? But at least in in a pretty big hit of a of a... Um, series and now like it's actually going to be on store shelves everywhere that's pretty cool yeah and i i agree here i think maybe it was like six months ago or so we complained on the air that like wizards of the coast is doesn't do a very good job of marketing especially these crossover things that they should be taking advantage of because like the zeitgeist is all dnd right now um Mm -hmm. yeah good on them for actually doing this yeah, it only took two years, but you know that's good. You got to get the the rights, I guess. It was just in time for season eight, right? It's great for the direct to video movie, which I really actually hope comes out on VHS. You know, exactly. <laughs> Maybe Laserdisc. All right. Speaking of making good decisions, here is a message from DMC Dive with Mike Shea. Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from the website Sly Flourish and author of the books The Lazy Dungeon Master and Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations. I'm going to be hosting a brand new show on the Don't Split the Podcast Network called The DM's Deep Dive. Each month, I'll be talking to a member of the D&D community about a particular topic of the game like encounter design, tools for improvisation, and game pacing. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes, on Twitch, or on YouTube. Join me and we'll all work together to make our games fantastic. All right, we're back. Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Death World Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. And while your mining camp is being held together by an increasingly frantic Trank, uh, your heretic doc continues his research, and Trix is uncovering embezzlement. Now hold on here, okay? In Trank's defense, the reason he is increasingly frantic is because of Doc. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of Doc, and because there's a causal all, effect. <laughs> everyone else is leaving the camp to go do other things, and you're like, "Wait, I gotta keep this together by myself and watch Doc? Are you people crazy?" I'm trying not to shoot him in the head, but he gives me every reason to. You keep telling me not to kill him, and yet here we are. Uh, So meanwhile, Flair is in Meridian moving forward with his plan to contact the Sentinels, uh, which are like the security organization in Meridian. They're kind of one of the powerful factions of the city. So Flair does as Flair does. He is, of course, a noble, even if he's sort of on the outs with his house. So he proceeds... As he always does, he simply approaches the Sentinel's compound, uh, has one of his lackeys rap on the door, and requests an audience with the person in charge, the patrician. Yeah, so this goes um, exactly as well as it deserves, and he is literally laughed off the premises. I like that, like, Angelo knew this wouldn't work. But, oh, yeah. Like, but he had to. <laughs> yes, of course. Flair had to do this. He, it literally would not occur to Flair not to do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and it's like just one more embarrassment that that poor flair has to suffer in front of his own like his own attendants right his own felipe's his current felipe's yeah (laughs) all right but he does then go out and enlist the help of tricks who's actually pretty good at this bureaucratic stuff yeah, he's uh, he is at least skilled in dealing, you know, with the non-noble castes of uh, of society. So they do what Trix does, which is begin gathering dirt and employing some sort of minor irritation intimidation tactics. Right? They they start um, asking around town about certain people. They start um, posting up in like known sentinel haunts, you know, different um, bars and taverns and um, gathering places that sentinels like to be in. And they just kind of like are there, you know, they, they don't make a scene or anything, but they're just present. They're just sort of that nagging question that everybody in the organization is going to start asking. Eventually, they're enough of a nuisance that they do get called in for a meeting. Uh, but it's not with the patrician. Instead, it's the Sentinel's spymaster, the librarian. Yeah, so they meet in, a, in a, I think, a very public place, actually. Uh, like, right in the center of Meridian in sort of the noble compound where, um, you know, it is, you know, the rest of Meridian pretty wild west you know there's the occasional shootout in the streets the occasional brawl riot uh you know gangers running street races and, and that sort of thing not all that uncommon um but here in like the the nobles quarter th- it would be pretty untoward to like even really show a weapon right because here if you're here you're rich enough you don't even need to show that kind of blunt power so they meet at a cafe, um, and and they get kind of uh, jerked around a bit by the librarian, right? Like uh, she has somebody sit with them at their table and start speaking to them, um, sort of the the usual nothings of of spycraft, and then she does the move where from the table behind them she starts speaking to them, you know, just kind of the the classic thing, just a a subtle reminder that Flair is not good at this. An overt reminder that Flair is not good at this. <laughs> well, it's subtle in the sense that they haven't, you know, just like packed his seat with explosives and set off the detonator, <laughs> which was actually mostly Flair's concern was that he would just be ambushed. <laughs> I wish that had happened. I think that probably the funniest part, if that had happened, would have been that the entire room would explode and the one most likely to survive would have been Flair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, the librarian basically kind of levels with them. She says, you know, like she has been rather amused by them fumbling about town, trying to seek the audience uh, that they have been. But, you know, for all their uh, lack of uh, capability there, like all of their lack of spycraft, she does at least appreciate that um, they're you're recognizing the power of the sentinels right like you have at least acknowledged that they are a group that you need to be on terms with uh whether good or bad like they are there um so she does kind of uh, you know give you a begrudging respect even if you're not actually good at playing her game unfortunately it's immediately squandered because tricks and flair basically beg to have an alliance <laughs> yeah it was they're like we know about your debts and we wipe them and also like we know where you hang out and stuff uh could you be our friends please <laughs> uh yes the 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 proper application of alcohol can undermine everybody's abilities uh so they do settle for her promise that she's not going to oppose them when uh we actually hopefully begin to succeed in making a name for ourselves yeah, you're you're almost certainly going to ruffle feathers if you uh, 
continue to be successful in your mining operations. And and she basically says, Hey, look, like we're not going to get involved. Um, we're cool. We're not friends, but we're cool. And then she asks them to stop doing favors for <laughs> the Sentinels. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if you recall, Flair's original attempt here was to uh, try and collect information about them and, and some leverage on them based on um, some debts that they were kept with a with a bookkeeper, uh, with one of the, the bookies for the Digilords. And uh, in the process, Flair um, murdered the guy and then wiped all the Sentinels' debts with his lieutenant uh, in order to save face. And uh, yeah, the librarian is like, look... Uh, that was actually a really good source of information for us, and it was well worth paying a few, uh, like a few coins out and losing bets in order to have that source of information. Like, please don't step in any more of our stuff. Hey, good. All right, that uh, that was a nice bit of information that we got from that. Right, right. So it's a win. It's a win. <laughs> yeah, go with a win. It's, let's call it a win. We're gonna call it a win. <laughs> and we'll find out what happens next next week. So this week, Shane, we are talking about corruption. Um, what 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 is it? Okay, so it's not abuse of power and accepting bribery and all the usual political corruption type things. Uh, we're here talking about, um, as as Webster calls it, uh, a departure from the original or from what is pure and correct. Oh my god, uh, like, have we strayed into book report territory? Oh, we're doing book report territory <laughs> like, here. According we, to the dictionary. Because what I don't want to talk about very, very clearly is like government corruption and politics. This is about uh, personal corruption. Right, and we're also not talking about like... Um, you know, things decaying or rotting in nature, like uh, the blighter that we did uh, not too long ago. Right. Yeah. We're, we're talking about more of like a moral decay or a, or a personality decay or, you know, uh, the decay of the artifice of the world around us. All right. So what does it mean, though, in an RPG? Yeah. So in RPGs, it typically means like the gradual transformation of a player character into something that is evil or otherwise impure. Right. And this is usually like this is usually occurring when the the player doesn't really want that, right? Usually. Yeah, I, typically, right? I mean, there is the the downward slide of an arc for like uh, alignment. Of course, that would be more along just a series of the player's choices. Uh, but I think a lot of games treat uh, corruption as like a gotcha, right? Uh, it's a it's a penalty that you pay as a result of doing certain things. Yeah, so depending on the game, it could have just role-playing uh, consequences. You know, um, people trust you less or you're developing a bad reputation. I mean, it could even be something supernatural, like you begin to smell like brimstone. Or, or it could also have actual mechanical effects, like with your dice. Mm-hmm. So what are some themes that show up in RPGs when we're talking about corruption? So I think the most obvious one is the fall from grace, right? And this is like a, a super old Judeo-Christian theme, like dating back to um, like Paradise Lost and even like the Garden of Eden to a degree, uh, is the idea that like you you have something, you are good, you are noble, you are pure, and you will eventually uh, descend into evil and madness and, uh, you know, just awful. Yeah. Um, you see this certainly in, I guess, more quote-unquote recent stories. Um, the holy champion who's failing to live up to their own code, they fall short and they either like 
wholly give themselves over to evil and become a blackguard, um, or you know maybe they they just uh, have fallen short and and you know are unable to redeem themselves, like a like a Lancelot figure. Yeah, or they've fallen short and they just become a fighter. Right. Yeah. And yeah. now <laughs> I just don't have spells. Yay. Right. And I didn't even get extra bonus feats. Yeah. I, I mean, this <laughs> happens for a lot of like religiously themed characters, right? I think by by nature, that's the way D&D has been written, um, where if you're not upholding the tenets of your deity or of your uh, of your you know temple or order or faith or whatever it is, like you can cease to be able to use those powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also kind of the theme of the horse heresy in, uh, in Warhammer 40K, like the whole idea of the emperor being betrayed by his son Horus, who has fallen to the chaos gods, um, and, and sort of like given all of the angelic iconography of the Imperium, you know, it's like, it's very close to paradise lost. <laughs> like it is the angels rebelling against heaven and being cast out. Yeah. This is, I mean, common with almost all of these narratives. Like if someone was not good, then the betrayal doesn't actually mean anything. So like the arc must have begun like on the high end before swinging down low. Right. And the reason for this is often some sort of moral failing, right? These stories exist to sort of like relay lessons about how real people should actually live. Um, There is something wrong about the way a character like views the world or about the decisions that they make um, that leads to their downfall. Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that these particular characters need to start as good or as pure as um, some of these like paladin to blackguard transitions or like, you know, Lancelot falling. Uh, anybody, no matter how good or sort of like normal or average they are, can still make a bad decision or like deal with some sort of like level of hubris or fatal flaw that causes them to like fall even further. Yeah. And, and this also comes in when you have like more of like uh, absolute evil in your setting, right? Like the idea that you could be a, a f- an evil character who is still redeemable, right? But uh, at a certain point, like you have become so corrupted by evil that you're no longer capable of redemption, right? Like the like the Emperor and Darth Vader, for example, right? Like there's no redeeming Emperor Palpatine. Like he just has to go. I mean, we, we talked about this in Crossing the Moral Event Horizon, that episode. I'm pretty sure Darth Vader's like point of no return was killing younglings but maybe that's just me i don't know i don't know (laughs) okay but again that was retconned (laughs) ot only (laughs) i mean he did blow up like an entire planet yeah at least one planet that we know of (laughs) like probably a lot of younglings on that one too Um, the other thing though is like it, that fall from grace doesn't necessarily have to be because of a moral failing, right? It, it can also be from like, uh, just a flaw of character, right? Like there, there are plenty of, um, there's plenty of characters who grow corrupt, not because they're like giving over to temptation or, or moral failure. It's because they're foolish, right? Or they're not suspicious enough, um, or they're like, too trusting of somebody who is betraying them, right? Like you, you do have those kind of like tragic falls from grace where, um, and I mean, that's actually like the going back to the horse heresy, like that's what happens to Magnus. Uh, the Primarch of the thousand sons is like, 
he kind of has no choice, right? Like he tries to do the right thing to warn the emperor of what's happening. And then he gets cast, cast out and he has no choice. Like he falls to chaos because he trusts his brother. Like that, that sucks. Yeah. This sort of separates it from, um, religious stories, which typically teach that as long as you're trying to do the right thing and you, you try very, very hard, then like, you'll be all right. But the much more, I guess I would say realistic stories. Sometimes you do everything right and you still fall because like life is a pendulum that swings between tragedy and absurdity. Oh wait, are we talking about games? Sorry. We're talking about RPGs, (laughs) (laughs) but life in RPGs is a pendulum. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the, um, I think important aspects of corruption is that, it it almost always comes with some sort of gain or power like in in rpg specifically but like in, in stories as well like you get something from leaning toward the dark side like you get to use force lightning mm-hmm. right um like you are you are powered by rage which is a much easier uh, emotion to tap into than a lot of the like whatever emotions jedi are supposed to tap into i don't actually know <laughs> it's I, I don't know harmony i guess yeah you tap into balance yeah that that that's a primordial feeling that is welling up inside me when bad things happen (laughs) i mean i wake up and i just feel so balanced yeah Uh, in a lot of games you know as you slide toward corruption or toward evil you become more powerful like if you actually do become a black garden in D &D, like um like in 3.5 you gained a, a bevy of additional abilities even in 5e actually if you look at the oathbreaker paladin in the dungeon master's guide it's like considered pretty strong and i think we don't even use it in um the character creation forge because it's like it's overly strong yeah so so to come back to the theme around that right like a lot of times what drives the corruption itself is lusting after that power or lusting after that immortality right it's the it's the desire to harness those abilities um that's where you get like you said um you know dark side jedi do that but also like in fantasy you have like liches and vampires right a lot of times they're seeking out like ultimate arcane power right immortality or vampires are seeking to stave off death um so uh like that's the sort of romantic tragedy of the vampire right is the like the vampire or the the person who becomes a vampire and then makes their true love a vampire so they can live on forever in and on life but now things just aren't the same. I don't know. You're looking a little peaked. Yeah, so something's a bit off. Huh. Oh, you get this with mad scientists in Deadlands. Uh, they don't necessarily understand what the heck is going on. They don't get that, like, the souls of the damned are in the coal that they're using. Right, yeah, the ghost rock. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but they're, you know, they are just... Uh, trying to advance uh, scientific processes as much as as much as they can like to push the boundaries um although like this happens a lot like you know something's weird and wrong like it it feels like you probably shouldn't be doing this but there's nothing specifically saying that it's a bad idea and so that that then becomes sort of like uh maybe you're failing but also um the thing that causes your fall is you just weren't questioning enough yeah yeah that the mad scientists i think in deadlands um tend to be more of the like background or setting or like a lot of times like they're the npcs um that are putting into motion like the plot of a deadlands adventure um more so than the characters because like deadlands doesn't spend a whole lot of time in labs right 
but it does spend a whole lot of times dealing with you know a mad scientist who has created this monstrosity and has lost his mind in the process. Yeah, look, it's Jurassic Park, okay? They spent so long wondering if they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Right. So a lot of settings also treat just magicians in this way in general, right? Like certainly historically uh if you if you treat witchcraft as real right like witches were exiled uh and and persecuted but yes, like exiled into this bonfire <laughs> i mean again pretending that witches were real okay <laughs> um but you know like lots of uh, lots of low fantasy settings aren't comfortable with magic right so anybody who uses magic is maybe believed to be demonic or possessed or something like that like uh, that that sort of fear um, certainly that's a theme in um, 40k for psychers who aren't trained or in like warhammer fantasy for um, the the same hmm. and then lastly the uh, the one of the other big themes that you can tap when you're dealing with corruption in your game is the um, the character that is succumbing to temptation who like very legitimately like out in the open knows this is a bad thing because in fact someone is saying hey you should do this bad thing because it will be great if you do it you know back to the garden of eden like the snake says you know god said don't do this i know god said don't do this but you know what it'll make you pretty smart yeah it's gonna be pretty great if you do it though so this is also a big theme of call of cthulhu right like and and there's a a layer of dramatic irony laid on top of Call of Cthulhu where like as a player of course you know that your character should not be investigating that strange Necronomicon in the library right but as characters like you are driven to do that right and you know that the knowledge that you gain therein is going to ultimately be your undoing because you like you don't want to pierce the veil of the elder gods right yeah, I think my favorite application of this in games is the, uh, to be honest, the relative trope of an actual devil, a fiend showing up and like tempting a mortal, you know, um, you have Faust. Like the, the Faustian bargain. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think in the abstract, a lot of times, you know, players uh, will will say, that doesn't make any sense. Like who, who would ever trust a devil? Like, you know, they're going to screw you over. You know, they're going to steal your soul. But like in practice, in the game, when presented with potentially, maybe you feel like you could outsmart this devil or at least get away with it. And like the parameters of this contract actually seem pretty, pretty reasonable. Uh-huh. A lot of players it's go like for you're it. talking right at me. <laughs> <laughs> you're right here. <laughs> Because my character in Morning Glory in our Eberron game, Brand, uh, lost a hand and then made a bargain with our devil in order to have him act as my hand. So did you think that, like, were you worried at all that you might, like, Brand might lose his soul? No. I thought I had pretty secure uh, safeguards around that. You felt you had, like, locked down the language of the contract. I, I felt pretty good about that, yeah. All right, uh, all right. I had, I had bigger concerns around... Um, losing control of like my appendage and less so about like losing my soul but more around like being compelled to do something that i um that i didn't want to do and it was balanced out by like the fact that i was completely nerfed and incapable of pursuing our (laughs) our, like much bigger objectives (laughs) which is save the world right okay okay <laughs> it was it was exigent circumstances that led to brand's corruption <laughs> look look that's that's how it happens right i just right. wanted to save the world exactly 
and instead you lost yourself. Sometimes you're just a noble idiot. (laughs) Although, let's be honest. If it were flipped around and they refused to, like, save the world to protect their own soul, wouldn't you be like, wow, that's really selfish of you? I Yeah, Brandwood, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, does that put Bastion's betrayal at the end of Morning Glory when he was literally tempted by a fiend? Uh, does that put that into perspective? Do you have a different perspective of his betrayal of the party now? No, because the cost was... Because <laughs> he was prioritizing, like, a minority of souls over all souls. Yeah, but if you had all joined up, you could have had a majority of souls. 60%. I... Okay, we don't have to rehash this argument every time we talk about it. <laughs> but yes, uh, the the theme of temptation can also lead to uh, personal betrayal, as Bastion demonstrated in the Eberron game. Yes, the theme of temptation. Like, if you watch Temptation Island, you're a bad person. Deserve to fail. <laughs> and you are personally betraying your parents, who raised you better than that. <laughs> and yes, we said we weren't going to talk about it, but this happens with political corruption as well. Uh, an obvious theme is like political bribery leading to uh, a downfall, either loss of office or loss of reputation. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things like it, it might not, it's certainly not our focus of this episode, right? But it, it fits along those themes in like more realistic kind of more grounded um, games, right? Like even um, like I'm thinking like Knights Black Agents, right? Like you could you're a spy uh, primarily, but you do work within like a bureaucracy, like a government bureaucracy. Right. Um, And you you do engage with like different arms of government and like sort of pseudo government agencies. So like there's a, there's a strong theme of corruption around that. That could certainly filter down to a Knights Black agent character. Right. And then the, I think the last theme, right. We've talked about a couple different ways is, is sort of the fool. Right. So the, um, the Faustian character who thinks like this is a good deal, um, and genuinely believes that like this is the right thing to do for them uh, and they, they are obviously in over their head um, or you know as you mentioned Brand is sort of in the same boat right like he he was corrupted by the fact that he thought he could control um, the outcome of his bargain with the devil what I traded my eternal soul for being very good at the violin for seven years who's the fool come on <laughs> <laughs> or in the sequel uh, the devil went down to georgia he actually turned out on okay right johnny wins well you know everything's turned upside down in georgia right <laughs> sure <laughs> nothing happens the way it's supposed to happen um this is also uh eisenhorn the uh the inquisitor in 40k does the same thing right like he ends up corrupting himself eternally um uh, in order like seeking power through binding a uh, a demon to help people yeah i mean to continue working f- for the best interests of the imperium just very radically and probably <laughs> at the cost of his own soul <laughs> all right so let's talk about um corruption mechanics in your game yeah so this is kind of one of those principles that we always espouse right is like the mechanical weight that you give over to a theme uh should reinforce its importance so if corruption is the core theme of the of the genre then the game probably should have robust mechanics right like it should really feature that as a as a part of the game uh and if it's secondary then it might be relegated to more like role-playing cues or sort of how you treat the character in fiction um rather than having you know affecting your dice rolls and and being necessarily like uh constructed on your character sheet yeah like if you're playing a more to arthur game um 
Lancelot and his fall is probably going to um, be a, a big part of the game or like it'll be somewhere in the mechanics but it'll be especially important if there is like a corruption track that you're sort of tracking exactly how far Lancelot has fallen. Right. Or like if Galahad is like right behind him. Right. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that like the uh, the impact of corruption on the game and on, on the story can't be huge. Um, it just means it's not sort of like core to what the game is designed to create. Right. Right. It's like uh, necessary but not sufficient. Like if there's if there's a number on your sheet that says how corrupt you are, then it will need to be referenced. Right, right. So what are some ways that um, we can have these mechanics showing up in games? So you can have different character traits uh, or aspects or keywords depending on uh, the specific mechanics of the game that you're playing. Yeah, I think this works best in systems that are more broad or designed for kind of generic games. Um, So I'm thinking like um, Fate or uh, GURPS, right? Where you you end up with long lists of aspects and traits that describe your character and each have like their own mechanical impact um, for how they're used in the game, right? So your character might gain just a trait that's called corrupted or lust for power, right? Like those are just descriptors that then have a mechanical impact on your character. Right, and that you're either referencing when you are taking actions uh, or uh, resolving outcomes, um, or that you're just leaning on uh, for like to inform your role play. Yeah. And because they're mechanical, they often have uh, both a positive and a negative impact uh, on your character. Or if they're solely negative, then they probably need some additional positive trait to offset having it. Like, And you know, that might be like you get extra build points or you get to pick a positive trait as well. Right. Um, or they're, they're linked, right? Like, right. Uh, like aspects in Fate are both things that can be like used and compelled against you right so like being corrupted is is almost certainly often a bad thing that you are going to be like compelled to do things because you've been corrupted Uh, but you could also maybe lean on your corruption for more power in certain situations yeah and having the effects packaged together is probably more common in uh traditional fantasy like if you're a wizard who turns himself into a lich you're very obviously corrupted Uh, Mm -hmm. but with that comes a great deal of additional power of being undead and you know an infinite amount of time in order to do research Mm -hmm. yeah so like when you talk about like packaging effects you can get like a wholesale swap of class or archetype or like templates applied to your character as a result right like um i think the like lich or vampire were both like um modifiers that you could just build off of your character right they just changed your cr and um or what your sr in third edition uh no it was still it was still cr um but yeah it was like a a coat that you would put on a character right el right oh yeah yeah, uh it was your effective effective level. level yeah yeah so that just got subbed into your character right or i think actually lich probably had a prestige class i'm sure at some point uh, that was fourth Darkness edition probably. had lich. Um, third edition had a template that you applied, mm. so you could like make anything a lich. Yeah, um, same thing with a fallen paladin, right? Like in in AD and D, fallen paladins were called fighters, um, and like later on, they became oathbreakers or blackguards or you know various variety of like empowered uh, negative paladins. Yeah. So on the back end of these 
transformations. Um, they usually sort of happen wholesale, right? Like you turn into a lich and now the ritual is complete. You fall as a blackguard and now here's a new character sheet, right? Um, it's a good opportunity to really sort of bring that home to tie together the mechanics and the storytelling. Like you're working with the player or your GM to determine exactly what point the fall occurs or like the corruption becomes total. Mm-hmm. And then we reflect that in the mechanics by basically redrawing an entire sheet or like retconning very um, large aspects of a character. Yeah, so to just contrast that to like just adding character traits, right? Like you can wade into the pool of of filthy miasma, right? And like when you do that, you gain the trait corrupted. Like that's just what happens, right? And you just write it on your sheet and we move on and you can find out what, what that means later. Like you can't really do that for a lich, Right, because at the moment that you become a lich, you've you know finished your ritual or like gotten the last bit of knowledge or whatever it is. Like you have to transform into a lich, uh, not not just in the story, but also like your whole sheet gets wiped away. Right, like there's like a rebuild component, like that just there's more mechanics around it. So you need to build that into your story pace so that there's actually time to incorporate that. Because um, otherwise, like if you start the session. Or like, you know, an hour into your session, like one of your players becomes a lich. All right, well, they're going to spend the rest of the session making their character a lich, like actually filling out the sheet and like finding all the different abilities and like figuring out how their character works. So you're going to kind of screw up the session if you do that midway through. Yeah, like if you are um, having the deep and emotional conversation about the paladin falling to become a blackguard, the the pivotal moment should be at the end of the session. And like, everyone's mm-hmm. going to gravitate toward that anyway. Right. <laughs> Cause well, like hopefully. 45 minutes before the end of the session is like not the optimal time for it to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Nor is it the very beginning. <laughs> like, like the five minutes before the session. Hey man, you're going to be a, li- you're going to be a, you're going to be a black guard in about 20 minutes. Are you ready? <laughs> uh, do I have to re-roll hit dice? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> Uh, and then I think we've we've alluded to it uh, a couple times, but I think a very common one um, that we see in games that are really prioritizing corruption as a like an ongoing long term theme uh, for basically all characters is when you see either a corruption or an insanity uh, like damage track, right? They kind of treat it as a as another pool of hit points that can eventually um, either kill your character or otherwise take them out of play. Yeah, we talked about this in the episode on insanity. Um, but corruption basically does the same thing. You gain more and more until, voila, you're an NPC. Mm-hmm. So usually when you have these kind of damage tracks, there's some mechanic with which to resist them, right? You have some type of defense against them or like a saving throw or or something similar before you actually like, you know, some attempt to resist. Uh, and then you also typically find it like much easier to gain your corruption um, and more difficult for you to heal your corruption or possibly even just impossible to reduce that track. Yeah, you get this in a lot of Star Wars games where you have like a dark side track or like dark side monitor on like how much dark side you are, right? And at, there's a, always like a fulcrum point at which you sort of flop over and now, mm-hmm. now you're dark side and either you're going to be a Sith and maybe you can play a Sith in the game or like now the GM is running your character. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that like I remember in Saga edition what would happen is um it it was relatively easy to gain dark side points and very difficult to get rid of them until you became a Jedi master. 
and a Jedi Master could get rid of one dark side point like per round. Oh. Because like the whole point was they would dip into the dark side and then like redeem, dip in and redeem. And that's one of the reasons that they were so powerful. That's a that's a weird that's a cool mechanic that is very weird in the fiction. <laughs> it works for uh Mace Windu. Okay. But Great. probably less Yoda. <laughs> the, yeah, like the old purple lightsaber. Got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of times this uh, this damage track comes with other mechanical effects bolted onto it, right? So as you advance down the damage track, there are some uh, further mechanical impacts to your character, right? That kind of like get added over time. So like typically these are going to be negative, right? It's just like if nothing else sometimes it's just more difficult to heal or more difficult to resist as you get more and more corrupted um a lot of times your own defenses are undermined um but otherwise like you can end up with benefits and drawbacks that are just you know related solely to your corruption track yeah you might get tougher or stronger either mentally or physically uh oftentimes you gain access to new abilities or spells you might just get straight up improvements to attributes or, or traits. You know, you uh, gain new keywords or you just get bonuses to ability scores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, almost invariably, the price of this is too high, <laughs> right? Like there are enough drawbacks to gaining this corruption that whatever like benefit you're getting, probably not worth it. Yeah. I like uh, when the mechanics when the mechanics mirror the temptation that the character is feeling by tempting the player. And this works really well when it's like a slippery slope. So like the first time you're a bit corrupted, you gain a small boost and like, it's not that difficult to resist, but then it subsequently becomes more difficult to resist and the abilities that you gain grow exponentially as well. So you have the player sitting here going, okay, well, I could go three more steps in and that's probably where I should stop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let me let me let me high point this. Right. Although then I only have a 30% chance of actually stopping. But So I'm going to be real bad up to a certain point and then I'm going to be really good. Super good. <laughs> super good. <laughs> I think this character is true neutral. That's, that's what I, that's what I think. I mean, you're describing Doc. You know you're describing Doc in in dynasty unwarranted right yep yep he's like corruption i hurry up and wait okay yeah i can (laughs) excuse me while i optimize my corruption (laughs) look if it has a number attached to it you can so dark heresy has like kind of a fun thing where um you roll randomly for the effects of corruption uh and you have a chance to resist it every once in a while um but the the negative effects are rolled randomly and the table is pretty skewed towards either like inconvenient or outright negative but there are some on there that are like you know your five or ten percent chance of actually getting these things are really cool and really powerful right like and doc himself has um it will not die so he will eventually become a demon and he literally cannot die anymore but he's paying for that uh with the price of his soul and uh the copious amounts of corruption that he continues to gain as a result Yes, he will eventually become a terrible person whose soul has been given over to evil. He is a terrible person. He will become a terrible demon. Okay. (laughs) Works for me. All right. So now that you've nailed down the mechanics, what are some good ways to incorporate this into the role play at the table? 
Yeah, so there's like a lot of cue questions, right, you want to keep in mind. Like, what does the character know about their corruption, right? And how does the character feel about that corruption uh, if they know about it, right? Like uh, the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They might not know that they're bound for, uh, bound for a downturn. The road to hell is also paved with skulls. So I just feel like uh, any basic insight check should let you know this is not a good idea. <laughs> oh, no, no. Those are the skulls of our enemies. Um, and I think they might be research subjects who gave their bodies right. to science. That's probably exactly. what it is. They, they check the box on their uh, driver's license. Yeah, they were paid. Yeah, I also really like the um, dramatic irony aspect of like the character maybe understanding something different from the player. Yeah, this this goes well with uh, like Call of Cthulhu theme, right? Like the the player knows that every every pursuit of knowledge is terrible for the character, but the character has genuine curiosity and doesn't understand the effects that are going to come. And then you need to decide: is the character resisting this corruption, or are they embracing it? Are they actively pursuing it because of uh, the benefits that they're going to gain? Either one is actually a really interesting storyline. Yeah, so because if you're resisting, you want to figure out like what causes corruption, and then like how do you cure the corruption, and like you end up having to weigh every decision against the risk of further corruption, right? Like, so it becomes like kind of an ever-present problem that the character has to wrestle with. Yeah, like in our Dark Sum game, we're like, okay, no defiling. That is horrible and corrupt, and once you start defiling, it's hard to stop defiling. We'll never do it until the point when we were like, okay, but what if we don't know about it, and that person does it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What if you're mind controlled? (laughs) Right. Is it fine then? It's okay then, right? Yeah. Yeah. What if you tell everyone you were mind controlled? Uh, And then the opposite, right? If you're embracing the corruption, like, are you hiding this from your companions or are you openly acknowledging it or maybe even flaunting it? Right. Like, are you embracing the corruption to such a degree that like, you don't think they can stop you? And then you, you scream that, right? You cannot stop me. And then that makes it true. That's, uh, yes, that mm-hmm. is exactly how it works. And they absolutely won't even try because they know that it's true. I speak only the truth. Then the question is, can a character who is suffering from corruption overcome it, assuming that they want to? So in some settings, this just might be categorically no, right? Uh, the setting of, uh, of heaven in Paradise Lost. Like, there is no redemption for the, the fallen angels. Or Lovecraft. Like, you slowly become more and more insane. There's no, like, doctor to help you with that. Right. Uh, in high fantasy or, like, more heroic genres, then redemption is usually possible, right? It might be really difficult. It might require a lot of sacrifice. Um, but a character that is, like, determined to do it can accomplish it. Right. It might require, like, heroic death in order to actually <laughs> right. redeem yourself or <laughs> <Yeah>. your family line. <laughs> like I said, it's hard. <laughs> and then if they if they do manage to uh, either, like, overcome it or at least stop it or, you know... Um, reject it like what does the character learn from that experience like how are they changed how do they behave afterwards that's different yeah what is it about what is different about themselves uh the way that they think about themselves uh their reputation this is a good opportunity it's a good time to think about the kind of character who has fought corruption and has has kind of won, who maybe has won a Pyrrhic victory against it. 
in mm-hmm. that they are definitely like still scarred by it and affected by it and may still have some lingering negative effects, but do still get some benefits. Like uh, Jim's replacement character for Draco in, in Dark Heresy is um, uh, what someone who was formerly possessed by a demon. I think that's the background. Mm-hmm. And like they get a bunch of negatives, um, but they also get a bunch of bonuses. And that's something that could wouldn't necessarily have to happen when you create a character. It could happen in, in the, as in the middle of a character's arc, right? You do finally like break free of the the demons embrace, uh, but you are left fundamentally changed by it. Yeah, and I mean that also then tells you something about the people around you as well, right? Like, like for example, Jim's character. Um, bearing the marks of like demonic possession and still being welcomed into your crew tells you something about the crew, right? Like you are not as puritanical as maybe some others in the Imperium would be. Yeah. We're genuinely pragmatic. We know that someone who has broken free of the possession of a demon once is actually much better at resisting it now. And so that's why he goes first. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and likewise, it tells you something about like the the broader world at large, right? How they respond to it. Like, how do people in some random backwater planet respond to Jim's character uh, when they see the the scarification that's a result? Yeah, the the open scarification, like outside his body, because often you'll have um, physical changes to your appearance. Uh, Palpatine, of course, like became an ugly dude because we just believe that people are more evil when they're ugly. Right. <laughs> he became a witch. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you might find uh, characters looking more gaunt or, like, constantly exhausted is one way that they're often described. Like, they might be sallow. Uh, you know, they might have, like, a jaundiced tone to their skin. Um, uh, generally, corruption isn't associated with being a, you know, a peak of health. You know, you'll have, like, goat hooves or grow antlers or... um Crab claw hand. Um, this happened a lot with like the tiefling uh, random characteristics characteristics table right like that was inspired by um, like stories of people who are corrupted by dealings with devils so Mm -hmm. you smell a bit like brimstone you have a forked tail or a forked tongue yeah so all of these things are are going to sort of beg the question then how do NPCs like how how does everyone react to seeing this or being associated with somebody who, who has this even after the mechanical effects are done, uh, the role-playing effects still linger. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh Yes, I can hear everything because I have big, floppy, droopy ears now. It's a sign of my corruption by the demon lord of Basset Hounds. And so here we are. Well, that can only mean one thing. It's time to move on to the character creation forge and roll up a Basset Hound demon. <laughs> But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sounds Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. Hey, you. Yeah. You, listening to the podcast, I bet you like tabletop role-playing games. That's probably why you're listening to a podcast on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Well, did you know there's a show on this network called Tabletop Babble, where I, James Intracasso, talk to many industry greats 
and awesome people who play role-playing games about role-playing games. It is great. It's like any conversation you would have at your local friendly game store. I've talked to people like Mike Merles, one of the lead designers of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, Wolfgang Bauer of Cobalt Press, Ruth Tillman, who's done a lot of awesome game design work with Pelgrane Press, and so many others. You can check it out over at don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. Can you imagine if instead of being hyena people, gnolls were basset hound people? I think nobody I mean, would uh, be afraid of them until they, you know, got torn limb from limb and eaten alive. Who's their uh, Who's their demon? Yiganoth or y- something? Yinogu. Yinogu. Yeah, I bet Yinogu would be like way cooler with more people. He'd have lots more followers if he were a basset hound. And he's a demon lord, right? Shouldn't he be able to like look like a basset hound? No. 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 Absolutely not. What if? He put on a Basset Hound mask and pretended to solve crimes. <laughs> okay. But Wait still, his followers were like terrible, bloodthirsty savages. I still think it would work. Is he wearing a trench coat? <laughs> yes, and a deerstalker. <laughs> okay, then yes. I mean, obviously, yes. An unreserved yes. I guess it has one reserve. <laughs> Must be wearing a trench coat. I must be too corrupted. Uh, I don't really see anything wrong with the human sacrifice. Well, it's convenient because today in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the purifier. Like a thing that goes on my my tap? A holy Brita filter. Ah, wonderful. Uh, No, so tell us about the purifier. What does it do? So the uh, the idea of the purifier is that when you are corrupted, when you have uh, when you have these negative qualities brought upon you, uh, the the Purifier is here to get you back on your feet, heal you, both mind, body, and soul, and uh, more importantly, get you back in the fight. All right, so Shane, what is the build? The build is Oath of Redemption Paladin 14, Grave Cleric 6. Um, We talked, I think in the Xanathar's guide review, um, we talked about how like Oath of Redemption is really good. It is a very good Paladin subclass. Yeah, it's a good and fun one. Like it's it's good in a way that isn't undermining the rest of the party. Yeah. So you get all the paladin goodies. You get to smite stuff. You have uh, great auras that give you bonus to saving throws. You get a steed. Yeah. Uh, you get some channel divinity options. Emissary of peace, which gives you plus five to persuasion. Hey everyone, can't we all just get along? Yeah. Come on, guys. And you can also um, rebuke the violent, which lets you redirect the damage from uh, an attack. Uh, at level 7, you'll get Aura of the Guardian, which lets you take the damage for an ally as a reaction. It's a great way to protect your spellcasters from making concentration checks. For example, if they have polymorphed you into something big and terrifying. And at 14, you get Cleansing Touch, which which lets you end a spell on yourself or a willing creature as an action. Yeah, that's kind of your capstone ability, right? It's, uh, it's your way to remove um, sources of magical corruption. I like that it is a willing creature because it means that you need to use that persuasion bonus to talk corrupted allies into wanting to be better, and then mm-hmm. you can help them. But like it, it doesn't sort of override their own character arc by saying, no, no, you're not corrupted anymore. I fixed it. Yeah, so the reason I went with Grave Cleric and not Order Cleric is actually that. Um, because the Order Cleric does have the ability to charm. Um, but I feel like removing corruption from a creature that isn't genuinely willing to give it up is not on theme for the purifier. Yeah, and I think like as a GM, I wouldn't let that actually remove corruption 
right? Because the whole point is is that it's about like your soul and about your choices. Uh, so like someone commanding you to to be good doesn't make you like less terrible, and it right. certainly doesn't redeem your soul. Yeah, exactly. So from Grave Cleric, we get a Circle of Mortality, which maxes healing for any creatures who drop to zero. You can sense undead with Eyes of the Grave. And of course, you get the amazing Path to the Grave, which lets you curse somebody and that doubles the damage from the next attack that hits it. Then at level six, uh, the reason we take Grave Cleric all the way to six, you get the Sentinel at Death's Door ability. Uh, That means as a reaction, you can turn a crit against an ally into a normal hit. So this character is really good at protecting allies, potentially from other allies. Yeah, from other allies or from, you know, from uh, perhaps the corrupting influence itself. You mm-hmm. know, like a vampire attack is going to be very hard to uh, get through on your party if you're sitting there. So in terms of leveling order, I think you just want to start Grave Cleric, uh, go all the way to six and then switch over to Paladin. It lets you get your cleansing touch ability as your capstone, which feels like a really thematic thing, um, especially because cleansing touch as an actual ability um, probably won't directly address corruption mechanically the way that you would expect, um, just because of the way that like D&D doesn't treat corruption as its own damage track. So, um, you know, it's more of a flavorful thing um, that is actually quite powerful, right? Just not specifically for the theme of the build. Mm-hmm. So Ishin. Who is your purifier? So my purifier started off as the shepherd of a small congregation um, far away from like big towns. It was just, you know, a small farming community. She performed ceremonies and marriages and the occasional like bless or, you know, helping farmers uh, like birthing calves um, until one fateful, terrible day when uh, she dealt with a young child who was possessed by uh, a minor minor demon, probably a quasit or something that was, you know, escaped from some sort of uh, wizard who had, who had brought it on as a familiar, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and she wasn't able to save that child. She didn't really know what she was dealing with, what she was up against, and, and realized that she never wanted to have this happen again, uh, to have people, innocent kind good people corrupted from within by uh, things far beyond their ken and so now here she is making sure it doesn't happen to any of these uh these adventures in her party what about your purifier so my purifier is uh comes from a a region uh, that is known uh, to be run or controlled by vampire lords. Mexico, right? Is that what uh, that works? I suppose. That's in... I don't know which edition you're playing, and I don't isn't particularly that care. Isn't, isn't oh, oh, Rifts. Rifts Mexico run by vampires. That <laughs> totally makes sense in a very Kevin Symbiata way of like, yeah, uh-huh. you took Dia de los Muertos and made it vampire stuff, right? Um, anyway, so... As a result, right, like there is uh, like sort of an order of resistance, right, Uh, an order of the grave, which, you know, in one way uh, is sort of serving the needs of the vampire lords by, you know, performing a lot of duties that are necessary to not only keep their um, herd of human cattle uh, alive, but also like sort of the burial rites and everything necessary to create new vampires, right? Like there's a, a magical process there as well. Um, but as a result, like my purifier 
has grown uh, to resist that. Um, so gaining sort of the ability to protect others around them uh, from becoming the prey of vampires, right? They're sort of uh, resisting corruption of the vampiric embrace preemptively. Like sort of a, the best defense is a good offense, if you will. I know that someday they're going to want to eat me. And so I prepare for that day. It's almost like herd immunity in a ah. vaccination, right? Like that's that's kind of what the order of the grave is about. Well, vampirism um, causes autism. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I saw True Blood. I know these things. <laughs> uh, but then eventually my, my purifier like uh, isn't content to just defend against uh against these overlords like my purifier is on the warpath uh wants to directly uh go after them and thus becomes uh takes up the righteous cause of a paladin becomes blade basically becomes blade nice i dig it all right before we wrap up let's take a moment and thank our patreon supporters yeah your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week so if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're continuing our series on campaign settings, and we are, I guess, finally talking about Middle Earth. I'm not familiar with that with setting. That, where, uh, where is that is, located? Is that a thing from Thor? <laughs> <laughs> where is that located again? <laughs> on your shelf most definitely okay. you may not have read it <laughs> not my shelf all right in the character creation forge we're building the writer of rohan all right well that's it for episode 187 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening total party thrill is brought to you by our friends over at cobalt press want to learn the secrets of elven magic who doesn't? Even the elves do. That's why they're always turning into Belnorn and liches. Yeah, they're just real slow because they live so dang long. Oh, man, right? I'm 114 and a freshman in college. Yeah, but I got a way that you can condense that timeline. You can learn elven magic lickety-split. Oh, yeah. You can blast your enemies with battle magic or build cunning mechanical servants with clockwork magic using the Deep Magic series from Cobalt Press, which has all this and more for 5th edition D&D. You can learn time magic, rune magic, illumination. There's nearly 20 PDFs with new ones coming out all the time. So in this series, you'll find new magic schools, sorcerer's origins, warlock patrons, feats, spells, magic items, and more. I think that covers the bases. That's uh, pretty all, much everything. All the big magic ones, yeah. Best of all, each deep magic PDF is a deal. Most of them are just $2.99 for a huge trove of content. Oh my God, I can't even deal. $2.99 is not even $3. That's less than a cup of coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, which I drink because I am a blue-collar, uh, red-blooded American, sir. Yes, wait, is it really? Is a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee more than $3? Because that is a ripoff. Dunkin' Donuts coffee should be $0.69 cents like McDonald's coffee. Also, it's just Dunkin' now. D-U-N-K-I-N apostrophe. Hang on. If you're getting like the extra large like I am because uh -huh. you are fueled primarily by coffee... Then yeah, you're gonna spend like three fifty on your coffee. Oh wow! Let me ask you this: Would you rather have in your hand a scaldingly hot, extra large, uh, swill water coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, or would you like a Deep Magic PDF that lasts forever on your computer as long as the human race has electricity? I reject the premise. I would like that PDF on my phone. 
And that's where I put it. <laughs> well, if you're like Shane, you can pick up the Deep Magic series for 5th edition at www.coboldpress.com. And we outie. Uh, we should get f- Annie's for best podcast ads. <laughs>